0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. This morning, we're going to carry on in our book of Judges. Um, This is our our sixth week, and this week is special. This week's special because... The passage this morning is unique to the book, both in terms of its style and in terms of its authorship. Um, the style is that of a song, so it's poetry, it's the only poetry in the book of Judges. And the authorship, we're told, is it, it's different. Uh, we, some speculate about who wrote the book of Judges, I think it was Samuel, but uh, this chapter was written by Deborah, and it says De- Deborah and Barak sang this song together. Uh, but throughout the psalm, we recognize that it's Deborah's voice um, being referred to. And so, this is a song that was written by that wonderful woman, Deborah, that we talked about last week. And uh, yeah, and it's, and it's a song. You know, how many of you guys like country music? Anybody willing to raise? Okay, all right. A lot of people are willing to raise hand on that one. Yeah, I, I did my fair share. I used to be a, a roofer. And so I did my fair share of listening to uh, K... uh, Well, is it K-100? Yeah, and then there was The Wolf. The Wolf came to Toledo later. But yeah, and uh, I think that there's... I I use myself as a reference for this, but I kind of feel like there's a great divide in country music. There's like the classic country, and then there's more of like the pop, rock, rap, whatever country that's more current, right? You guys feel me on this one? There's like a great divide in country music. One of the things I really liked about the older style of country music, sort of like the Battle for New Orleans type country, you know what I'm, you know that song? is the fact that the country music used to tell stories. Like the older country, I've, I think about that genre and I think like story songs, right? They all had a story to it, and there may be trite stories that accompany most modern country, but not like the old ones, right? Um, this chapter sort of reminds me of story song country music. And it really is a song telling the story of the battle which we read about last week in chapter 4. But as we said, it's from a different vantage point. It's from a... a, I use the word doxological. It just means it's from this this viewpoint of looking at the story and instead of just recounting it as history and narrative, it's bursting with glory and praise to God. It's a song of rejoicing in the goodness of God. This song... Serves as a memorial of what God has done in the very same way that you think about it. There's a lot of songs in the scripture that were written by women that are like this. So you have the song of Hannah. You have this song. You have Miriam's song. You have Mary's Magnificat. Um, These are all songs that are aimed at what God has done and the marvel and the glory and the wonder of it. And there's also some details in this song that we didn't get in chapter 4, so we're going to look a little bit at some of those special details, but now I'd ask you to stand with me. We're going to read chapter 5, Judges chapter 5. If you have your Bible, turn there, please, or you can follow along on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. Judges chapter 5. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, that leaders led in Israel that the people volunteered. Bless the Lord, hear O kings, give O rulers. I, to the Lord, I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Mount Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth quaked and the heavens also dripped. Even the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord, this Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of jail, the highways were deserted and travelers went by roundabout ways. The pleasantry ceased. They ceased in Israel. Until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a mother in Israel, new gods were chosen. Then war was in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people. Bless the Lord. You who sit on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, you who travel on the road, sing at the sound of those who divide the flocks among the watering places. There they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord, the righteous deeds of his pleasantry, peasantry rather, in Israel. Then the the people of the Lord went down to the gates. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and take away your captives. O son of Abinoam, then survivors came down to the nobles, and the people of the Lord came down to me as warriors. From Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek, came down, following you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Mechur, commanders came down, and from Zebulun, those who wield the staff of office. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his eels. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead remained across the Jordan. And why did Dan stay in ships? Asher sat on the seashore and remained by its landings. Zebulun was a people who despised their lives even to death. And Naphtali also on the high places of the field. The kings came and fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan. At Technar, near the waters of Megiddo, they took no plunder and silver. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on with strength. Then the horse's hoofs beat from the dashing, the dashing of his valiant steeds. Curse Meres, says the angel of the Lord. Utterly curse its inhabitants because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to help to the help of the Lord against the warriors. Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a magnificent bowl, she brought him curds. She reached out her hand for the tent peg and her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she struck Sisera, and she smashed his head, and she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. Where he bowed, there he fell dead. Out of the window she looked and lamented. The mother of Sisera threw the lattice. Why did his chariot delay in coming? Why do the hoofbeats of his chariot tarry? Her wise princesses would answer her. Indeed, she repeated her words to herself. Are they not finding? Are they not dividing the spoil? A maiden, two maidens for every warrior. To Sisera, a spoil of dyed work, a spoil of dyed work embroidered, dyed work of double embroidery on the neck of the spoiler. Thus, let all your enemies perish, O Lord. Let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. And the land was undisturbed for forty years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that as your people saw what you did and rejoiced and gave glory to you, that we would, as we look to your word, rejoice and give glory to you for what you have done. And Father, all these stories of real history, the real lives of men and women, may they not seem distant to us, but may we know that we are made Brothers and sisters with them in your son, Jesus Christ, and may we continue their legacy to the glory of your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's a long song. Probably wouldn't make top 100 or top 40. Um, There was a lot there. But I hope you were able to follow along with the narrative of what happened in that battle through that song. Notice, if you have your Bibles with you, just keep it open to that passage. We'll refer to, back to it throughout the sermon. Notice how the song begins. <clears throat> they sang on that day that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. So there's, it's sort of a strange way of speaking. We don't speak that way today very often but what she's saying is is because the leaders led and because the people volunteered bless the Lord she starts with why we ought to bless the Lord she begins with a great hallelujah blessed be God praise the Lord why obviously first the leaders led second the people volunteered it's very simple now it may be obvious if you're on the brink of war that you need to gather your troops and go out and fight Like it's obvious that that's the only option if you don't want to be steamrolled or conquered by the enemy but we need to remember in our minds as we are going through the book of judges the way this whole book is framed in we need to remember the state that Israel was in at this time and one of the things that should be very clear to us only five chapters in as we are is the fact that Israel was was not willing to fight as they should have fought. If, If there was a theme in these first five chapters, that would be one of them. Israel is not willing to fight as God had called them to. In fact, since the very beginning of the book, this has been one of the central themes. Last week we talked about Deborah, and the fact of the matter is that though her example should be a, a one that shines to us as how we ought to live and how godly women live. She was living in a very pathetic time where she had to reason and argue with the military commander to even get him to go and, and even then she had to promise to go with him. The reason I point this out again this week is that I want to make the point that it cannot be assumed, cannot be assumed, that Israel's leaders would be willing to show up for battle, It can't be assumed that when compromise had been the M.O., it just been the way they did things, it was their manner of working, that the people would be willing to rouse themselves from their slumber, leave the convenience of their home, and show up for battle. All this to say, after the battle was over, Deborah's response is, praise be to God. Praise the Lord. She clearly saw the hand of God working to convict and to muster to bring those men out to fight. And her song begins with praise for what he has done and for how he has done it. After recounting uh, the sad and fearful tyranny of life under King Jabin, Deborah goes on to say in verse 9, I just want to point it out to you, if you've got your Bibles, look at verse 9. We're talking about verse 2, and now we're going to skip down to nine it says again my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel the volunteers among the people bless the Lord sounds very similar to verse 2 doesn't it she's repeating that same idea once again bless the Lord this is essentially an echo of, of that first line here's the point that I want to highlight right at the beginning God is the one who fights our battles God is the one who fights our battles. That's why Deborah starts there. It's foundational. It changes everything. God is the one who blesses our work. God is the one who gives strength to our labor. God is the one who builds the house. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's Romans 11. It's Deborah. That's her song. Deborah sees this reality very clearly, and she gives praise to him to whom praise is due. We've got this little vignette found in chapter 4. We read verse, chapter 4 last week, but I want to read it again. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. This is the scene I'm reminded of. When I read that, I was reminded of that scene with the commander and Lord of the Rings when he's got all those horses, right? But the only difference is they pretty much have no horses and chariots. All the horses and chariots are at the bottom. But there's this scene of all these 10,000 troops at the top of a hill rallied, ready to fight against the 1,000 the chariots of Sisera. And they charged. Deborah says, arise. Today is the day. God will give it into your hands. And Barak, to his credit, leads the charge down the mountain toward the armies. And we're told in chapter 4, verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot, got off off his chariot, and fled away on foot. Now how did, God's getting the credit here. The Lord routed Sisera. Now, how did God rout the armies of Sisera and all his chariots? Well, this is a piece of information that we didn't get in chapter 4, but it's actually given to us very clearly in chapter 5. I want to reread just a couple of verses. 19 says, Kings came and fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Teknar near the waters of Megiddo. They, tek- they took no plunder in silver. The stars fought from heaven from their choruses. They fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. Now, I'm tempted when I'm reading things like this to not put a whole lot of real thought into it, but it's pretty clear what happened in that battle if you just stop to think about it for a second. We know what the Maumee is, but we don't know what the Kishon River is. Most of us have never seen that. But it's essentially saying... The, the great banks of the muddy Maumee swept them away. So now you get a picture of what's happened to this army, don't you? All right? It's made clear. God whipped up a storm. As Barak came charging down the mountain with his armies, rain started to pour down from the sky. And it was a torrential downpour that caused a flood, and the banks of the Kishon River spilled out over, uh, over the land. And all of Sisera's chariots, which were right on the banks of the river, got swept away. The military advancements of King Sisera became dead weight. That grand fleet went from being intimidating battlements to being basically boat anchors in the the bottom of the Kishon River. That's what happened. That's what this song is about. That was God's work. God's strength. God is the one who fights our battles. God is the one who blesses our work. God is the one to whom praise and glory and honor are due, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So just having really tried to zone in on this theme in her song, that God is the one who has given the deliverance, won the victory, he is the one to whom all the praise is due, Having established that fact, I want to point out another major theme that's dancing in lockstep with God's miraculous power, and that is the fact that God, at every point, called on Israel to play an active role in what he was doing. Now, this is an obvious point, but it needs to be said. God didn't need Israel to fight against Sisera. He didn't need, remember, a couple weeks ago, we heard Deborah went to Barak and said, hey, this is what God wants you to do. He wants you to go and fight. God didn't need Barak to go and fight. He didn't need Barak's forces on foot to run down Mount Tabor against Sisera. Perhaps now verses 4 and 5 of chapter 5 will be more clearly understood. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Eden, the earth quaked, the heavens also dripped, even the clouds dripped their water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the God of Israel. Now, why did Deborah say the Sinai? Well, maybe it was because God's presence was there with them. But it's also because essentially he's doing, again, what he did right before those people found themselves at the base of Mount Sinai when Moses was retreating from Egypt. When he was leaving Egypt and Pharaoh's armies came chasing out after them God cleared the water of the Red Sea and then caused it to come crashing back against Pharaoh and his chariots. So this isn't the first time God has done such a a miraculous thing and won such a, a wonderful victory for the life of Israel. God didn't need Barak or his armies. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. But he is pleased to call you into his work. Just as he called them, he calls you. It might be to fight. Fighting is certainly a major theme in the book of Judges. It's certainly a major theme in the Christian life. But God is always calling his people to play an active part in the work that he's going to do. So you can just, in your mind, take a chronological hyperspeed shot right through the Bible. And from, from, from Noah to uh, Nehemiah, building a wall, to we go back and to David and building a kingdom or to Solomon and growing in his wisdom and understanding of the way that aqueducts work and plumbing and and sciences to the New Testament and Jesus with the twelve calling twelve sinful, at times foolish men to accompany him in his years of ministry on the earth and then not just to accompany him while he was around and could keep them straight but to commission them and to say that it's better that I go back to my Father and you continue the work that I'm, I'm doing for you. It's better that that happen as I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. Greater things will happen. The scripture is run through with the idea that God doesn't need us. But he calls us to privilege. He calls on us and he employs us in his work, in his labor. And if I can just mix a couple of stories, Jesus says that the fields are ripe for the harvest. He's called us to that work. And again, going back to the fight, we're going to read about a, a judge named Samson at the end of Judges. And he ends up burning down people's fields by tying foxes' tails together and putting a torch with them and then letting them off. He burns down all these Philistine fields. If Jesus says the fields are ripe for the harvest, Satan is trying to to be a Samson and burn down the fields. We're called into the labor. We're called into the fight by Christ. So in verse 2, when it says, Oh, that the leaders led, that the people volunteered, Blessed be the God of Israel it really nails this dual reality that that I'm speaking about. That God is the one who's fighting our battles. He is the one who's building, creating, opening hearts. And yet, the leaders had to decide to lead. The people had to turn out and volunteer. This is a song of praise. It's a song of worship. It's a song of rejoicing in God's deliverance. It's a pep rally for the people of Israel. That's really what it is. And remembering how they had banded together and what God had done through them. And it was, it was wonderful. And yet, just read this song, not everything in this song is praise. It is a song of praise. It is a song of worship. It is a song of glorying in what God has done. But it's not all praise, and it's not all, not all good. It's not all rejoicing. Not all heard this song and willingly just started humming along, did they? At the epicenter of this song, at the very center of chapter 5, after thanking God for all those who were involved in the fight and after recounting the effects that the victory had had in Israel, that this was once again an area where people were able to travel and trade where sheep, uh, shepherds were no longer afraid of the noises their sheep would make while they were near the watering places. They were no longer afraid that the enemy might hear them and come and raid them and take their sheep and their, their possessions. Toward the center of the psalm, after all that, Deborah gets into the nitty-gritty of who helped and who didn't. And she says that Ephraim came down. Benjamin came down. Zebulun, Issachar. They all join hands. They all join forces. But then the tone changes, and she goes on. And she says, and this is where we're going to sort of zero in on for the rest of our time together this morning. She says, among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks among the divisions of Reuben? There were great searchings of heart. Gilead, which is Gath. Remained across the Jordan, and why did Dan stay in ships? Asher sat on the seashore and remained by its landings. You know, I don't know about you, but if I were any of these tribes, I would have preferred to be just left out of the song altogether. You know, why do you have to go and give me an dishonorable mention? Or they probably try and put a you know parental advisory sticker on that one so their kids don't listen to it. Right? They don't want their kids knowing that shameful legacy. Deborah's song of thanksgiving and praise to God is wonderful, but no thanks to you guys. We're marking it down, we're writing it down, who is here and who is not. What happened? What was going on with these guys? Why didn't they show up for the fight? Why didn't they do the whole, like, band of brothers thing and and come to the aid of, of the other tribes? Well, from what we're told by Deborah, And by what we know about these tribes in general, that's not spelled out here, but what we know from geography and other things, it's easy to find some consensus as to why the things took place that took place, which was their cowardice and their lack of willing to come. These tribes were conveniently conflicted. They were conveniently conflicted. We're going to talk about that this morning. They received the call to arms... They heard the news about going to battle. They felt at some level the desire to help. They really wanted to. Seriously, they did put a lot of thought into it. It wasn't a decision that they came to lightly. They were conflicted. They did some deep searchings of heart. (sighs) (sighs) What should we do? What should we do? They definitely took it seriously. They were conflicted, though. You see, they had some responsibilities that they didn't feel so good about dropping. Who would tend to the sheep? After all, it didn't seem to be the responsible thing to do to leave the women and the children and the sheep all behind and to go off fighting. Wouldn't that open themselves up to potential threats? How would women maintain the ships? What if a storm came and it hurled them out into the water? Wouldn't leaving put their own families at risk? Aren't our own families our first first responsibility? What if the local enemy caught wind that they had left, and they had all vacated the premises, and by going to help their brothers, it led to the slaughter of their own families and the raiding and the, the robbing of everything they had? After all, some of these people lived on the sea. And if you know anything, I, growing up I always thought the Philistines were land people because, you know, Goliath was on land when he fought David. But that's not true. They were actually essentially pirates. They were a sea people. They'd travel up and down the coast and, and do many grabs. And they, they weren't really trying to take over huge areas of land. They kind of sacked things in an interesting way. They did just more convenience grabs, like, like the carry out on the corner. They'd go and grab something that was convenient for them. And they, they were a sea people, though. And if you noticed, not, not, not just one, but a couple of these tribes are at their ships, at the landings, right? The Philistines are around. We know that. We, we don't want to leave. We don't want to vacate. That would, be, that would not be responsible. What if we went and we lost the war? Plus, weren't there tribes that were closer to where this conflict was actually taking place? After all, Asher was quite a bit north, And Dan was south, and and Gad and Reuben were on the other side of the Jordan River. Certainly, there was a better candidate for the job. But we really do wish that we were in a better position to help. We really do. They were conveniently conflicted. They felt some pull toward helping, but conveniently for them, things weren't that simple. There were other options to consider, other responsibilities to weigh. They had had options. So they ponder, and they search, and they think, and they weigh, and they make resolves of heart. That's what Deborah says. But you know what? Ultimately, they do nothing. There's an analog to the story in the New Testament, and it's when Jesus is speaking about a great dinner. And he invited many to that dinner, and and he sent out invitations saying, come, for the dinner is ready now. But those he invited began to make excuses. One said, I've just bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another said, I have five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another said, I have a wife and for that reason I can't come. That's even a better reason, right? Spending time with his wife. Isn't that part of what every good husband should do? The slave came back and reported this to the master. The head of the household became angry and he said to his slave, go at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And that's who came. These people received a call, these tribes, come join me. And they knew that deep down in their chests they should do it, but they didn't want to. And lo and behold, thankfully, that's, that's what their hearts said secretly, thankfully, they had something else that they needed to consider, and at the end, when it was all said and done, they didn't come. Now, this is us, isn't it? We are masters of evading the things that we don't want to do and concocting serious-sounding reasons for why we don't do it, justifying what we, what we do or don't do to others as well as to ourselves. We're conveniently conflicted. We are masters of justifying away what we don't want to do. Now, don't miss this. Deborah has mockery in her voice. There's there's a lot of tongue in cheek here. The Reubenites had sent up a best wishes card to her, and they said that they really wished that they were able to be in a better position to help, but unfortunately, they were given other God given responsibilities to tend to. They really hoped that she sensed how much they were going to be with her in spirit. And she mocks them for this in the song. Oh, great searchings of heart. You were standing around. Oh, should we? Should we not? Oh, should we? Should we? Oh, 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 oh. I think it will. I think it will. I won't. That's what she's doing with this song. Yeah, we all like to cover things with great searchings of heart, great resolves, they make us feel like we're actually doing something. The problem is that we, we don't, we aren't. And this sort of thing is all all around us. We get asked for money by the drugged up guy on the corner. And we rejoice in our hearts that we have an urge to give. Oh yes, we consider it. You're no stone heart, but you also have to weigh what this man might do and it looks like there's potential for him to do something that you wouldn't totally approve of. And plus, you're planning on going to Starbucks and using that last $5 on a latte. Convenient. But I did, I did feel convicted to give. I just rationalized it away. We do this in our homes with our children. Recently, I, I've been convicted uh, before this passage of, of dealing in this way in my home with my kids. And I think that all, we all do this. So if you're a parent, listen up. I take issue with something that my children are doing. And I don't ignore it, I talk with my wife about it, maybe we go out on a date and we talk about our children, we talk about things we need to deal with. And then I use that conversation and the fact that I'm aware of it and talking about it as a salve for my conscience when my kids keep acting the same way and I don't do anything. I care, I'm concerned, I'm taking it seriously. But then I don't deal with the problem at hand. I had a great resolve of heart though. We do this by confessing our sins each week, but finding no victory. You like the fact that you feel guilty, don't you? It reminds you that you still have a conscience, and yet you don't put a stake in it. You don't actually do what you need to do to stop that sinful pattern, but you sure do feel good about yourself for sharing it with some friends. We do this in our homes, we do it with our marriages, we see things, but we, we don't know where to start, we don't know how to do what lies before us, just like King Barak, think about that, he's running down a hill on foot with a thousand chariots at the bottom, do you think he had a plan for how they were going to win the battle? Ridiculous. Of course he didn't know how he was going to win the battle, but he knew he had to do something, and it started with putting one foot out after the other in a quick manner. We don't want to cause upheaval in our homes, so we rationalize. We say, hey, that's not my business, I've got other responsibilities to tend to. I need to be a good steward of what God has given me financially. And we justify things away. You know, take, take Justin's justice movements too. Justice movements are built on, on the feeling that you are doing something when you're doing nothing. You're doing nothing, but you like to feel like you're doing something. You send a wish and a prayer. This is the culture we live in. Put a little filter over your profile, pick and look at you. Mr. Moral, Mr. Giving Yourself. But we live in a culture of cowardice. No one really takes action. We'll put up a new photo, though. There's no men riding up saying, Here I am, send me. There's a lot of posturing and feeling good about the fact that we feel concerned. That is what the tribes were doing. They felt good. They were feeling kind of smug about the fact that they felt concerned and in their hearts had an inkling of an urge to go help. They liked it and so do we. We like that feeling and we nurture that even when we are neglecting to do the things that we know God has put before our feet to run toward or to to do the things God's called us to do. This is the attitude that Deborah is singing about. So we need to mark that down in our minds. Here's a newsflash. Concern is not enough. The negligent tribes were likely concerned, but they still did nothing. Your feelings do not carry the weight that you'd like to think that they do. Feelings without action do not get you anywhere. And just think about this in marriage. You can have all the feelings in your mind and heart for your wife, but if it never translates into you doing things for her, based off those feelings, your wife's going to see through those feelings pretty quick, isn't she? It's just the reality. Feelings are not enough. The tribes were called to do something and yet conveniently they had something better to do or something else came up, that conflict that allowed them to justify their failure. At best here, at best, the tribes that weren't willing to enter into the conflict were reprimanded by Deborah and by God because we need to remember this song is inspired. And at worst, those tribes that didn't help were cursed by God. Verse 23 says, Curse Merez, says the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants, because they did not come to the help of the Lord. Notice again the help of the Lord, not the help of Barak. It's just the Lord's battle. It is the Lord's fight. They didn't come to the help of the Lord. To the help of the Lord against the warriors. Now, no one's certain who Merez is referring to. But we do know with certainty what? That they didn't come to the help. Of Israel, and they were cursed for it. Now we're not going to spend time. There are different opinions about who uh, that that, tri- that people group is referring to. We're not going to go there this morning. But what I do want to do is highlight the counterpoint. There's a curse in 23: curse Merez, because he did not come and help fight. There's a counterpoint in the next in the next verse. Jael's blessing. Curse Merez. verse 23. Verse 24. Most blessed of women is Jael. It's a contrast. It's there for a reason. Curse Mara's, they didn't help, bless this woman Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed blessed is she of women in the tent. What's interesting about Jael is that she did the opposite of what the tribes did who were conveniently convicted. Those, those, Those tribes that stayed back She does the exact opposite of what they do, and she doesn't have a reason for doing so. I want to point this out. She is a Kenite. She's actually not formally a part of Israel. Okay? Her husband was actually an ally with King Jabin. If you want to flip back to chapter 4, turn your Bible to chapter 4 and look at verse 17. It says, now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. So this dude was friends with the king that Barak is fighting against. She was his wife. There was no apparent reason to kill Sisera, other than probably the fact that Sisera and Jabin were so wicked. We're not going to go into this, but the reality is at the end of this, Story: when Sisera's mother is waiting, pining away at the window, her servants appease her anxiousness by saying, you know what, he's probably grabbing one and two women and having his way with them. Now, there's a word for what they were probably doing. We're not going to talk about it here right now, but it's not good. The fact that Jael is willing to do this probably speaks to the fact that Sisera and Jabin were immensely wicked and perverse men. Because she doesn't have an alibi to do this. Why would she do this? You think about it. What would her husband think? Right? You think about that for a minute. You just kill the commander of the army of the king of the land, and your husband is friends with and They golf on the weekends. It's all sand traps out there. It's bad golf. What is your husband going to think? There's no reason for her to do this. This is a woman. What if she fails? Sisera is a mighty warrior. Now, setting up the tent was part of culturally the women's work. But can you imagine? Have any of you set up your tent and missed missed on on one of those hammers? What if she just, there's a potential for failure here. What if she failed and she woke up this soldier? She didn't. Man, what bicep? One stroke threw his head into the ground. she had had practice at hammering those stakes. But what if she failed? While Reuben is pondering and searching their hearts, she's reacting quickly. She's outside the tent. She sees sister are running towards her. And without a second thought about it, she makes bold, quick decisions... And she's willing to get her hands dirty, isn't she? Think about what she did. She lied and she murdered. Oh, come in. Do you have some water? Oh, I have milk. Can you hide me? Oh, yes, right here under this rug. She's deceiving him. And then she nailed a tent peg through his temple with a single blow. Now, talk about getting your hands dirty. Many people get all jammed up trying to explain about how, why she did what she did wasn't wrong, how it wasn't sinful, how is lying and murder not not sinful? And yet, listen, chapter 5, verse 24, says that she's most blessed of all women. She's most blessed of all women. But we don't like to get our hands dirty, do we? It's much easier to do nothing. It's more convenient not to engage. It's more convenient not to speak, not to come crashing into the room like a 10-ton gorilla and trying to initiate any change. We'd rather stay clean. We would rather keep things diplomatic. We would rather keep peace and jail, who's this woman from outside of, formerly outside of Israel, this Kenite, is shaming us toward righteousness this morning. When you get in the fight, are you going to sin? Isn't that why often we, we don't? We're, we, we, we have a convenient conflict of mind. We say, well, I really should deal with this, but I'm so afraid I'll get angry. I'm so afraid that I might make the wrong decision, or I might, I, I'm so afraid that my, well, fill in the blank. There's so many excuses. Will you sin if you're willing to get into the fight? Maybe, probably. But if you stay back with the sheep, if you stay back with the ships, are you going to sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Get to the work that God has put in front of you. Start fighting the battles that you've been conveniently conflicted about because, you've, because I want to remind us of what we started with. Every situation that you entangle yourself in, every battle you choose to fight, every conversation that you opt into rather than opt out of or run from, when we live by faith... We have the promise that the Lord is there, fighting on our behalf. And in fact, he's fighting his own battle and he's using us. The Lord is protecting you and providing for you. That is the promise of this song and of this story. We read this account of God delivering Sisera into Israel's hands by miraculously whipping up a rainstorm so intense that it flash-flooded Jabin's chariots and carried them all down the river. And we believe that that was true, most likely most of us believe that story to be true and not just a myth, but so many of us need to believe that God is faithful to us like he would be to them. And there's the rub. And there's the challenge this morning. Do not be paralyzed by not knowing exactly how to go about doing something. Barak did not have a battle plan other than getting up off his rear and running towards what God had said to engage with. And God was faithful Was it messy? Yes. But God was faithful. So don't be afraid of getting your hands dirty. Don't be so conflicted. Have faith in God and act in faith and trust Him. It is the Lord who fights our battles. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not just uh, absent from this world, You aren't just aloof, out in the universe, distant from us, but that you are right here and that you are working. Your hands are intimately involved with nature and with governments and with churches and with families, and we pray that as you call us to be your hands and feet, that we wouldn't be cowardly, that we wouldn't make excuses that are convenient but that we would trust you. May we live lives of bold faith for you. And may we see victory in this life and in the life to come because of your son who has won it through being pierced for our transgressions and rising and vanquishing the foes of sin and death. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.